Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to today's edition of Listening In. My name is Francesca, and today we're going to go right into our reading of Tove Jansen's The True Deceiver. Chapter 1 It was an ordinary dark winter morning, and snow was still falling. No window in the village showed a light. Katri screened the lamp so she wouldn't wake her brother while she made coffee and put the thermos beside his bed. The room was very cold. The big dog lay by the door and looked at her with his nose between his paws, waiting for her to take him out. It had been snowing along the coast for a month. As far back as anyone could remember, there hadn't been this much snow. This steady snow piling up against doors and windows and weighing down roofs and never stopping even for an hour. Paths filled with snow as quickly as they were shoveled out. The cold made work in the boat sheds impossible. People woke up late because there was no longer any morning. The village lay soundless under untouched snow until the children were let out and dug tunnels and caves and shrieked and were left to themselves. They were forbidden to throw snowballs at Katri Kling's window, but did it anyway. She lived in the attic over the storekeeper's shop with her brother Mats and her big dog that had no name. Before dawn, she would go out with the dog and walk down the village street towards the lighthouse on the point. She did this every morning, and people starting to get up would say, It's still snowing, and there she goes again with her dog, and she's wearing her wolfskin collar. It's unnatural not to give your dog a name. All dogs should have names. People said of Katri that she didn't care about anything except numbers and her brother, and they wondered where she got her yellow eyes. Matt's eyes were as blue as their mother's had been, and no one could really remember what their father looked like. It was so long ago now he'd gone off north to buy a load of timber and never come back. He'd not been a local man. People were used to the fact that everyone's eyes were more or less blue, but Katri's eyes were nearly as yellow as her dog's. She looked at the world around her through eyes narrowed to slits, so people seldom discovered their unnatural color, more yellow than gray. But her perpetual mistrust, so easily roused, could cause her eyes to open in a sudden straight stare, and in a certain light they were actually yellow and made people very uneasy. People sensed that Katri Kling did not trust or care about anyone except herself and the brother she had raised and protected since he was six years old. That kept people at a distance. That and the fact that no one had ever seen the nameless dog wag its tail. And the fact that the Kling woman and her dog accepted friendliness from no one. After her mother died, Katri took over helping in the shop where she also did the accounts. She was very clever, but in October she quit. It was thought that the storekeeper wanted her out of the building, but didn't dare say so. For years, people had come to Katri and asked her to help them with their sums that they couldn't do themselves. She handled difficult calculations and percentages with complete ease, and the answers fell into place and were always correct. It began while Katri was doing the storekeeper's ordering and paying his bills. It was then that she acquired a reputation for being shrewd, penetrating, and good with figures. 
she discovered that several merchants in town were cheating. Later, she found the storekeeper in the village doing the same thing, but no one knew about that. Katri Kling also had an unerring sense for how sums should be justly allocated and for unambiguous solutions to naughty problems requiring a different kind of arithmetic. The villagers began coming to her with their tax declarations or to talk about bills of sale, wills, and property lines. There was a lawyer in town, of course, but they had more faith in her. And why throw money away on a lawyer? The boy Mats didn't count. He was 15, 10 years younger than his sister, tall and strong and considered a bit simple. He did odd jobs in the village, but mostly hung out in the Liljeburg's brother's boat shed when work hadn't stopped because of the cold. The Liljeburg gave him small jobs that were not too important. There hadn't been any fishing in Vasterby for a long time. It didn't pay. There were three sheds that built boats, and one of them took in boats on slips for winter storage and overhaul. The best builders were the Liljeburg brothers. There were four of them, all unmarried. The eldest was Edvard, who designed the boats. In between, he drove the mail truck to the market town, where he also picked up goods and groceries for the storekeeper. The truck belonged to the storekeeper and was the only vehicle in the village. The boat builders in Vasterby were proud men. They signed every boat with a W, as if the village name were still the venerable Wasterby of olden days. The women crocheted coverlets in old, reliable patterns, and they too signed them with a W. And in June, the summer people arrived, bought boats as well as bedspreads, and lived their easy summer life for as long as the warm weather held. Towards the end of August, everything went quiet again, back to normal, and by and by came winter. Now the morning twilight had turned dark blue. The snow began to glow, and people had turned on the lights in their kitchens and let their youngsters out. The first snowballs struck the window, but mats slept peacefully on. I... Catchy cling, often lie awake at night thinking. As night thoughts go, mine are no doubt unusually practical. Mostly, I think about money, lots of money, getting it quickly and taking it wisely and honestly. So much money that I won't need to think about money anymore. And I'll repay it later. First of all, Mats will get his boat, a big seaworthy boat with a cabin and an inboard motor, the best boat ever built in this otherwise miserable village. Every night I hear the snow against the window, the soft whisper of snow blown in from the sea, and it's good. I wish the whole village could be covered and erased and finally be clean. Nothing can be as peaceful and endless as a long winter darkness going on and on, like living in a tunnel where the dark sometimes deepens into night and sometimes eases into twilight. You're screened from everything, protected, even more alone than usual. You wait and hide like a tree. They say that money smells. It's not true. Money is as pure as numbers. It's people that smell, every one of them with their own furtive stink. And it gets stronger when they're angry or ashamed when they're afraid. The dog smells it. He knows immediately. 
If I was a dog, I'd know too much. Only Matt's has no smell. He's as clean as snow. My dog is big and beautiful and he obeys. He doesn't like me. We respect each other. I respect the mystery of dogs, the secret natural wildness that big dogs hold on to, but I don't trust them. How can anyone trust big watchful dogs? People give their animals almost human qualities and they mean noble and attractive qualities. Dogs are mute and obedient, but they have watched us and know us and can smell how pitiful we are. It should astonish us, move us, overwhelm us that our dogs continue incredibly to follow us and obey us. Maybe they despise us. Maybe they forgive us. Or maybe they like having no responsibility. We'll never know. Maybe they see us as some sort of unfortunate race of overgrown, misshapen beings, like huge, sluggish beetles. Not gods. Dogs must have seen through us. They possess a crushing insight that thousands of years of obedience holds in check. Why aren't people afraid of their dogs? How long can what was once a wild animal deny its wildness? People idealize their animals, and at the same time they patronizingly overlook a dog's natural life. Biting fleas, burying rotten bones, rolling in garbage, barking up an empty tree all night. But what do they do themselves? Bury stuff that will rot in secret and then dig it up and bury it again and rant and rave under empty trees. And the stuff they roll around in, nope, my dog and I despise them. We're hidden in our own secret life, concealed in our innermost wildness. The dog was on its feet waiting at the door. They went down the stairs and through the shop. In the hall, Katri put on her boots, and all the time her brain kept grinding out threatening night thoughts without any prompting from anywhere. When she came out in the cold and stood still, breathing winter's cleanliness, she looked like a tall black monument with that unreachable dog tight by her side, as if they'd grown into one. He never wore a lead. The children went quiet and trudged off through the snow. Around the corner of the first house, they started shrieking again and began to fight. Katri walked on towards the lighthouse. Liljeburg had driven some gas canisters to the lighthouse only yesterday, but the tracks had nearly filled with snow. Closer to the point, the northwest wind blew straight in from the sea, and there was the side road leading up to the hill to old Miss Amelin's house. Katri stopped, and the dog stopped instantly as well. On the wind side, both of them were white with snow melting slowly in their fur. Katri studied the house the way she'd done for some time, every morning on her way towards the lighthouse. In that house, Anna Amelin lived alone, all by herself, alone with her money. Through the whole long winter, she almost never appeared. The shop sent what she needed, and Frusunblom came once a week to clean. But early each spring, Anna Amelin's pale overcoat could be seen at the edge of the woods as she moved slowly among the trees. Her parents had lived long lives and never allowed anyone to cut the trees in their woods. They'd been rich as trolls when they died, and the woods were still untouchable. 
Little by little they had grown almost impenetrable and stood like a wall behind the house. The rabbit house, they called it in the village. It was a gray wood villa with elaborate carved window frames in white, as gray-white as the tall backdrop of the snow-drenched forest. The building actually resembled a large, crouched rabbit. The square front teeth of the white veranda curtains, the silly bay windows under eyebrows of snow, the vigilant ears of the chimney. All the windows were dark. The path up the hill had not been shoveled. That's where she lives. Mats and I will live there too. But I have to wait. I need to think carefully before I give this Anna Amelin an important place in my life. Chapter 2 Perhaps the reason people called Anna Amelin nice was because nothing had ever forced her to exhibit malice, some kind of lesser monument. It was not that Anna Amelin was deceptive and protected herself with attitude, nor could it be rightly said that she hid her true face. It was simply that she was only fully alive when she devoted herself to her singular ability to draw, and when she drew, she was naturally always alone. Anna Amelin had the great persuasive power of monomania, of being able to see and embrace a single idea, of being interested in one thing only. And that one thing was the woods, the forest floor. Anna Amelin could render the ground in a forest so faithfully and in such minute detail that she missed not the tiniest needle. Her watercolors were small and implacably naturalistic, and they were as pretty as the springy blankets of moss and delicate plants that a person walks across in a dense forest but seldom really observes. Anna Amelin made people see. They saw and recalled the essence of the forest, and for a moment experienced a vague yearning that felt pleasant and hopeful. It was a shame that Anna spoiled her pictures by putting rabbits in them. That is to say, Mama, Papa, and Baby Bunny. Moreover, the fact that she drew little flowers on the rabbits dispelled much of the deep forest mystique. The children's book page had criticized the rabbits on a couple of occasions, and that hurt Anna and shook her confidence. But what could she do? The rabbits had to be there for the sake of the children and the publisher. A new little book came out about every other year. The publisher wrote the text. Sometimes Anna wanted to draw just the ground, the low vegetation, the tree roots, more and more precisely in a smaller and smaller scale so deep and close to the moss that its miniature brown and green world became an enormous jungle populated by insects. She could imagine a family of ants instead of rabbits. But now, of course, it was too late. Anna tidied away her mental picture of the empty, liberated landscape. It was winter, and she never worked until the first bare earth began to show. While she waited, she wrote letters to very small children who wanted to know how the bunnies got flowery fur. But on the day when the real story of Anna and Katri begins, Anna wrote no letters. She sat in her parlor reading Jimmy's Adventures in Africa, a highly entertaining book. 
He'd been in Alaska the last time. Anna's long, wide rooms were lovely in the snow light, the blue and white tile ovens, the bright furniture that stood sparsely along the walls and was reflected in the parquet floors that Fru Sundblom polished once a week. Papa had always wanted space around him. He'd been a very big man. And he'd liked blue, a cautious blue that was all through the house and that grew paler and paler with the years. A deep serenity lay over the whole rabbit house, an atmosphere of finality. Later, Anna set aside her book and decided that she ought to call the shop, a thing she disliked doing. The line was busy, so she sat down by the veranda window to wait. Outside on the summer veranda was a large snowdrift that the northwest wind had swept up in a bold curve, both playful and austere. A light, transparent fan of snow whirled above the knife edge at the ridge. This drift described the same line every winter, and it was always equally beautiful. But the drift was too big and too simple for Anna to have noticed it. She called again, and the shopkeeper answered. Had Liljeburg come back, she had forgotten to mention butter and pea soup. Not the big one, a small tin. The storekeeper couldn't hear what she said. He explained that the road still hadn't been plowed, so the mail truck couldn't get through, but that Liljeburg had skied to town and was going to bring the mail and some fresh liver. I can't hear, shouted Anna Amelin. Living? Has something happened? Liver, the storekeeper repeated. There's some fresh liver coming in with Liljeburg, and I'll put some aside especially for you, Miss Amelin, a fine piece of liver. And then he vanished in the snowstorm, another problem on the line. Anna drew the curtain on the world outside and went back to her book, relieved. Actually, she didn't care much for pea soup or for mail. When Edvard Liljeburg came back from town, he took off his skis and dropped his backpack on the shop steps. His back hurt and he wasn't in a mood to chat with anyone. He dumped the storekeeper's supplies in a cardboard box and carried them, still wet with snow, into the shop. That took time, the shopkeeper said. He was lounging behind the counter, still in a bad temper at losing his shop assistant. Liljeburg didn't answer, but he went back to the table in the enclosed porch to sort the mail. Katri Kling had seen him from the window as he skied up to the building, and now, all at once, she was on the porch looking over his shoulder, cigarette in her mouth as usual, examining the mail through the smoke. That's Miss Amelin's mail, she said. It was easy to recognize. Most of her letters were decorated with flowers, and the addresses were handwritten by very small children. Katri went on. Were you going to take it up to her straight away? Can't a man catch his breath, Liljeburg said. Being the postman in this village isn't always such a picnic. She could easily have remarked on the heavy skiing weather or asked how he could even see the road or complained about the town not getting its plows. Anything at all to show interest or pretend to show interest. The way people talk to make things a little more pleasant. But no, not Katri Kling. There she stood squinting through her cigarette smoke her black hair like a mane shrouding her face as she leaned over the table. 
She had wrapped herself in a blanket against the cold and held it closed with both hands clenched. She looks like a witch, thought Edvard Liljeburg. I can take the mail up to Miss Amelin's, she said. I can't let you do that. It's the postman's job to deliver the mail. It's a position of trust. Katri lifted her face and opened her eyes at him. In the hard light on the porch, they were truly yellow. Trust, she said. Don't you trust me? She paused and then repeated. I can take the mail up to Miss Amelin. It's important to me. Are you trying to help? You know I'm not, said Katri. I'm doing it entirely for my own sake. Do you trust me or don't you? Afterwards, Liljeburg thought that she might anyway have said that since she was going out that way with the dog in any case, it would be no trouble. But at least Katri Kling was honest. He had to admit that. Anna called again. I can hear you better now, the storekeeper said. A small tin of pea soup, you said, and butter. Liljeburg has come with the mail, and he brought the liver. It's fresh, straight from the belly, so to speak. I've set some aside for you especially, miss. But it won't be Liljeburg who brings it this time, but Miss Kling. She's headed out your way. Who? My old shop assistant, Katri Kling. She's bringing your liver. She's on her way. But liver, Anna objected. But she was too tired. Liver is so awful looking and so hard to prepare. But if you were kind enough to set some aside, this Miss Kling, you said, does she know to use the kitchen door? And then the line began howling again the way it always did in winter. Anna stood and listened for a while. Then she went to the kitchen and put on some coffee. Mats came home from the boatyard as dusk came on. In winter, the men in Vastrby worked only in mild weather to save on fuel, and the boat shed closed before dark to save electricity. They were very thrifty. Mats was always the last to leave. So, they got you to leave, the storekeeper said. I'll bet you'd sit in sandpaper in the dark if they'd let you. It's planking now, Matt answered. Can I have a Coca-Cola on our tab? Yes, sir, right away. Such a shame that your dear sister doesn't want to wait on you anymore. Really too bad. She was so quick in the shop. So, planking, eh? You don't say. So you do planking, too. Who would have thought? Matt's nodded without listening and drank his Coca-Cola at the counter slowly. In the small, overcrowded room, he seemed very large and tall, and his hair was long, much too long, and jet black like his sister's, not local hair. He seemed to have forgotten that he wasn't alone. But when Katri came down the stairs, he turned around and the siblings exchanged an imperceptible nod, a little signal of solidarity that was theirs alone. The dog lay down by the door to wait. The storekeeper said, so I hear you're delivering the mail to the rabbit villa. Here's the groceries. Watch the liver so it doesn't drip. She doesn't like liver, Katri said, as you well know. She gave that blood pudding to Fru Sonberg. Liver isn't blood pudding. Anyway, she ordered it. And remember to go in by the kitchen. Miss Amelin is particular about her visitors. This exchange was quiet and hostile like two warry animals circling for attack. 
He doesn't forget this little shopkeeper. He hasn't forgiven me that time. His lust was ludicrous, and I let him know it. I wasn't objective. Things get out of hand every time I lose my objectivity. I have to get away from here. The snow was very blue in the early twilight. Catry motioned the dog to wait at the turnoff and walked on up the hill with the wind at her back. No one had shoveled. Anna Amelin opened the kitchen door and said, Miss Kling, how kind of you. And in this weather, there was really no need. The woman who entered the house was tall, dressed in some kind of shaggy fur coat, and she didn't smile when she said hello. It smells of insecurity. This house has been quiet for a very long time. She looks like I thought she would, like a rabbit. Anna repeated, Yes, it was nice of you. I mean, it's important to get my mail, but nevertheless. Anna paused a moment for the reply and then went on. I've made some coffee. You do drink coffee, don't you? No, said Katri pleasantly. I don't drink coffee. Anna was taken aback, more astonished than hurt. Everyone drinks coffee if it's offered. It's only proper. You do it for the hostess's sake. She said, tea perhaps. No, thank you, said Katri Kling. Miss Kling, said Anna abruptly, you can put your boots by the door. Water will damage the rugs. Now I like her better. Let her be an opponent. Let me struggle against resistance. Amen. They went into the parlor. I should have got one of her books. No, I shouldn't. That would have been dishonest. Sometimes, said Anna Amelin, Sometimes I think it might be nice to have a wall-to-wall -wall carpet in here, something very light and soft. Don't you agree, Miss Kling? No, that would be a shame on such a pretty floor. Naturally, she wants a fluffy floor. Carpet or no carpet, it's all fluffy in here anyway. Hot and hairy. Maybe there's more air upstairs. We'll have to crack the windows at night or mats won't be able to sleep. Anna Amelin had her glasses on a thin chain around her neck and now she lifted them, breathed on the lenses and started rubbing them with a corner of the tablecloth. They were probably covered with fluff. Miss Amelin, have you ever had rabbits? Excuse me? Have you had rabbits? Uh, no, how do you mean? The Liljebergs keep rabbits but I understand they're very troublesome animals. Anna answered automatically in her own vague manner, her tone of voice never ending a sentence. Then she made a move towards the coffee pot and remembered this guest doesn't drink coffee. Suddenly, sharply, she asked, And why, Miss Kling, would I have rabbits? Do you have rabbits? Uh, no, I, I have a dog, a German shepherd. A dog? Anna's attention began to wander in a different direction. You never knew about dogs. The untouched coffee service troubled the hostess. She rose and remarked that they needed more light. It was already growing dark, and she lit one softly shaded lamp after another, then suggested that Katri take home an autograph. Anna had beautiful writing. When she finished signing her name, she began as usual to draw a rabbit, ears first, stopped herself, and took a fresh sheet of paper. 
Katri had gone out to the kitchen and put the mail on the kitchen table and the groceries on the counter. Pink juice ran from the package of liver. How horrid, Anna said behind her. Is it blood? I can't stand the sight of blood. Leave it, I'll put it away. But Anna had opened the package and the liver lay there exposed, brownish red, swollen with blood, small white seams running through the meat. She went pale. Miss Amelin, I'll give it to my dog. I'll take it away. I'm going now. Quickly, Anna began to explain. She had always been so fearful that things might begin to smell. You put them away and forget them, and they start to smell, and you start worrying that they'll go bad and have to be thrown out. And you can't throw out food the way the world is today. I understand, said Katri. You hide things, and then they start to smell. Why don't you stop buying things that can start to smell? If you loathe organ meats, then say so. Why do you order liver? It wasn't me. It was him. He was nice enough to put some aside. The storekeeper, Katri said slowly, the storekeeper, remember this, is not a nice man. He is a very malicious person. He knows you're afraid of liver. Outside in the backyard, Katri lit a cigarette. Darkness was coming on quickly. Anna Amelin hurried to the veranda window and watched her guest go down the hill, a tall, dark shape, and down on the road there were two silhouettes, as if a big wolf had come out of the twilight to join her. Side by side they walked back towards the village. Anna stayed at the window in resolute anxiety. Maybe a cup of coffee would be nice, but suddenly she didn't want one. It was a small but definite insight. She didn't like coffee. In fact, she never had.